Hello, this is Fiona Cuthbertson coming from the pod to record the second episode of Off the Cuff. This week, we're lucky enough to have Baroness Ritchie joining us to talk about her political career and the issues she's dealing with as a member of the House of Lords. Baroness Ritchie has the honour of having been the only female leader of the SDLP in its history and was not only a member of the House of Commons before she was ennobled, but also Minister for Social Development in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Happy to stand on the principles of what she thinks is right, she was the first leader of an Irish nationalist party to wear a remembrance poppy at a wreath-laying ceremony at the Cenotaph in Downpatrick. She's always been a campaigner intent on helping those in need. Current areas of interest include the importance of young people with SEND having the education and support they need post-Covid, the need for rehabilitation after cases of sepsis, the effective cost of living crisis on families across the country and the plight of WASPy women. Welcome Baroness Ritchie, it's lovely to have you here. I am absolutely delighted to join you, Fiona, on this podcast. You fire ahead um, with the questions. Thank you very much. Well, can we start at the beginning? Obviously, you've been in both the Commons and the Lords. Can you tell us a bit about your political journey? Well, I got involved in politics a long, long time ago. I joined the SDLP, obviously, in Northern Ireland. I believe in social justice. I'm a democratic Irish nationalist. I believed in non-violence. So obviously the party for me to join would be SDLP, because uh, well, firmly believed in civil rights, firmly believed in non-violence, and also believed in solutions in terms of North-South, in terms of Ireland, but also between nationalists and unionists, and also between Ireland and Britain. Now, three-stranded approach that just so happened to end up as the structure for the Good Friday Agreement. So that's obviously something I was very pleased about. I joined the SDLP back in 1980 after I graduated from Queen's University Belfast. I quickly got involved in elections. I was elected to the SDLP Central Executive in 1983 and then to Down District Council in 1985 and was subsequently re-elected on many occasions after that, until I left there in 2009. In 1987, I went to work for my predecessor as MP for South Down, Eddie McGrady, worked for him uh, as a parliamentary assistant, whether it was constituency office manager or whether it was on assessing and scrutinising legislation until November 2003, when I was elected to the Northern Ireland Assembly. I'd already been elected to the Ireland Forum, which was as a result of the entry to negotiations um, legislation back in 1996. But that was short term and limited. So therefore, I was elected myself to the Assembly in 2003, re-elected in 2007, appointed by Mark Durkin as Minister for Social Development and held that post for three years and then was elected as MP for South Down in 2010. In May 2010, in February of that year, I'd become the leader of the SDLP, and then I was re-elected in 2015, lost my seat in 2017, and then was appointed to the House of Lords in September 2019. My main focus has always been in trying to change the lives of people because I believe politics is the lever to do that. So what was the highlight of your time as the leader of the SDLP? Well, I tried to look at the main issues that impacted on us 
And one of those was the need for reconciliation, building that shared society. Because I come and the STLP comes from a very clear position that you cannot force unity. And it's not about uniting territory or anything like that. It's about uniting people. So therefore, to do that, you need to have reconciliation. You need to have respect for political, religious, ethnic, sexual orientation difference. And also the other area was the economy, because you have to have a strong economy to build reconciliation and to build unity. So I I started the work for that. And I'm glad the party has established now a New Ireland Commission. And secondly, I was pleased that we retained our three seats in May 2010. Sadly, we lost them later, but those were some of my highlights as leader. What was the hardest challenge you had to overcome in that role, would you say? We had to deal with many times when the Assembly was down because either the DUP wasn't in them or Sinn Féin wasn't in them or there couldn't be agreement. And the first thing was to do with decommissioning and then decommissioning happened and there was restoration. But then, as we know, they've fallen several times since that. So that has been a challenge not being able to do your job as a legislator properly. And that, for my colleagues, was particularly difficult. And that leads to uncertainty. So trying to do your job as a legislator, representing people. Yes, absolutely. Working across party in politics is, is often the key to getting change needed. What would you say that was the best example of that happening in practice whilst you've been involved? Well, the very fact that you have the Good Friday Agreement, the very fact and the institutions reflected Northern Ireland, reflected North-South, and reflected East-West to be up and running. And the fact that there were two referendum or referenda held on the island of Ireland that overwhelmingly endorsed the Good Friday Agreement and facilitated then the elections for election to the Assembly. And then that facilitated the appointments to NSMC and also the British Irish Council. And my greatest regret has been the failure of people and the failure of parties to work those institutions. The institutions are right. The framework is right because it's a matter of relationships and how we learn to live together and work together and recreate together. But it's the failure of people to work those institutions because... Both sets are still thinking in terms of majoritarianism rather than in terms of power sharing. Wow, that's really interesting because, of course, you know, there are still issues now, as you say. Obviously, when you were ennobled, what made you cross the floor? I was supported by Labour, uh, by some Tories and also uh, by members of the crossbench. So I was in, I was non-affiliated. My two sponsors were Baroness Smith of Basildon, uh, the shadow leader of the Lords, and Paul Murphy, who was a former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and a member of Labour. So essentially, ethnically, I am Labour. So I never saw myself crossing the House because I was already sitting on that side. And I firmly believe in social democracy, social justice, albeit I'm a democratic Irish nationalist. And I believe in my context, Labour fulfills those aims. So that's why I asked to join Labour. The other instance was that for 18 months we were operating via Zoom, so therefore you hadn't much social interaction with colleagues apart from seeing them on Zoom. So 
that gave me an opportunity to be part of a group and a part of an identity, a social democratic identity with the PES, of which I was once vice president. And I'm also looking forward to Labour victory at the next general election and Keir Stormer becoming prime minister. Well, come to thoughts on uh, what's going on at the moment in a little bit. But if you could just be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Working for the needs of those who are less well off. For example, I'm involved with trying to get a vaccination programme for respiratory syntical virus, which is really deep-seated respiratory infections. Because I myself, when I was a child, had pneumonia and I've been left as an asthmatic. So I think there needs to be something that nips that in the bud at a very early age. And I do believe there's a need for universal vaccination programme in the UK for infants and for older adults. Because people, when they become less mobile, become, shall we say, more prone to getting infections. So I think there needs to be a programme to deal with that. We have moved considerably in that the Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisations has recommended that there should be a universal programme. But obviously the government is working through these issues. And there's also the priorities of funding. And it looks likely that this programme will come in in 2024. Notwithstanding that, I would very much like it for winter 2023-24. So that's one of the things. And I feel that being able to work at that from people never hearing of RSV before to now it being on the agenda for the House of Lords business and ensuring that something actually happens with it. So that's one area I've actually chaired round tables on the whole vaccination programme. And I suppose we'll come out of COVID and we're into this and what it needs now to be done and to deal with a flu. I'm chairing one shortly. I think, on the flu vaccination programme. So those are areas I have a particular interest in. And I still have interests in terms of the development of my constituency in South Down in Northern Ireland. So I think that's really positive about the RSV vaccine because actually looking at various papers or whatever on it, it's still said that it's, you know, mild symptoms, common cold kind of equivalent. And, and yet, obviously, as you say, actually for young people in more vulnerable areas of the population, it really is still a, a very important thing to be vaccinated against. Absolutely, yes. So obviously, as you say, you, you are able to put things forward in a way that most people can't because of the position that you hold. So what's the most important lesson that you've learned over your career? I think not only working hard, being consistent, being determined is absolutely important because I had breast cancer after I lost my seat and that took me out of action really for a year. But the one thing I learned was the need for determination, determination to fight breast cancer. I'm now a breast cancer survivor and hopefully, touch wood, that that continues. And the other thing I always found that you never say take an answer no from any public body that you keep fighting for the rights of people to see a better solution. Now, you might not achieve what they may want or the most preferable solution, but you also learn the issue of compromise. And compromise ensures that everybody gets a bit of what they want and it's a win-win situation for all. Absolutely. Well, it's it's amazing that you're a breast cancer survivor. I'm, I'm a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. So we are in that 
fight together and we both know how important it is to just have gut and determination and then actually also move on and make sure that you take the fact that we've been lucky enough to survive and and run with that because obviously like you I've lost friends to cancer and it's really important that we we continue to really work and do what we're supposed to do in our lives almost in their honour as well so um, I think it's brilliant that we're here together and that you are just so strong still and doing yes. what you're doing. So what do you think is a common myth about being a politician, especially a politician in Northern Ireland? That you're always on the make. You're getting money for doing nothing and you're not doing anything. We work harder probably as politicians representing the needs of constituents or in my case in reviewing legislation than most many, many other jobs. And it is not nine to five. It is very much, in the case of the House of Lords, it can go on to 10 or 11 in the evening if there are votes. And we get an attendance allowance. And the attendance allowance is simply for your participation. It's not a salary. It's not taxed, obviously. And if you're not there, you don't get paid. You get paid if you attend a committee and if you attend a committee online, select committee, you get your travel paid for, which is very good because coming from Northern Ireland, have a lot of airfares, but you don't get your accommodation provided for. So you have to think of cheaper accommodation options that meet your particular requirements. Wow, that really is an insight. So thank you very much for that. It does sound that MPs can and members of the House of Lords really can be very much underrated. So what tools do you think are indispensable for your job? Indispensable tools with understanding, mutual understanding, empathy, sympathy, compassion and being humanitarian. Those are tools and also having a clinical eye and also be aware somebody could be always trying to catch you out i would say people have said to me that they only started to understand what politicians do when they came to people like me or me to do something for them and then they realized the amount of work that is involved absolutely so do you prefer being in the house of commons or the house of lords do you think Obviously, I loved being in the House of Commons because that's your one dream. I remember my, my first day sitting on that green bench, pinching myself, saying, really, am I an MP? And obviously, I was very sad whenever I, and devastated whenever I lost my seat. But then I had this opportunity to be in the Lords, albeit appointed and not elected. Nonetheless, I like it too. It is different. The Commons is the boss and it's very much the elected chamber. It's a bicameral institution, so therefore the Lords does the reviewing and the examining, the scrutinising of the legislation. Very, very different, but there's loads of opportunities there, whether in the Chamber or in the Select Committees. And I'm on 2.5 Select Committees. I'm on a scrutiny committee for the Windsor Framework, which has been very interesting to me in terms of, of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Because I, with Brexit, I'm a, I'm a Remainer, and I always believed that there had to be, and as the SDLP did, special status for Northern Ireland because we have a land border with the European Union. It makes, apart from the politics of the situation, it just meant economic trade sense. And also, I'm on one to do statutory legislation, which is all about statutory instruments. And we see 
that the government provide explanatory memorandums that are totally inaccurate and only start giving out the information when we ask for it. We have a brilliant team of advisors in both committees. And then the other one is we want to do with common frameworks. Now, by and large, its work is nearly completed, but common frameworks emerged out of Brexit and the European Union. Whenever Theresa May started her discussions with the European Union back in 2016, 2017, and that's areas of policy that have been devolved down from the European Union to the devolved administrations. And of course, the one bugbear was Northern Ireland, because the Assembly and the Executive on two separate occasions has not been working. So therefore, there has been a stalling on bringing forward uh, updated scrutiny. And in fact, Sue Gray, the former civil servant who I knew in the Northern Ireland context, who now works for Keir Starmer, was very good in terms of the Cabinet Office and advising us what was required and what they were looking for and how we could get over certain hurdles. There's some areas yet to examine. We don't know if we'll ever see them, but our work really has to be completed by December of this year, and we only meet periodically. So we've been very lucky because we've worked together on issues around education, and the stats are stark. Parents of vulnerable children being forced to wait nearly a year to challenge refusals by councils to offer SEND support. A survey by Family Fund finding that 62% of families said formal support available for the disabled or seriously ill child has decreased since COVID. And half of children needing support for SEND waiting beyond the legal deadline for education, health and care plans last year. What do you think needs to be done to reverse these trends? Quite honestly, I think there needs to be a change of direction in terms of government thinking, government policy and also in terms of if legislation is required. And I think that support in the case of England and Wales, where local government has responsibility for education, I think there needs to be a greater investment of resources. On a very personal level, my son has a son who is autistic, attends now a special unit before he's transferred to secondary school next year. He only has got to where he has got to because of the hard work and determination of his mum, go away to find out all the things that are available. She was able and to do that to persuade um, government and local authorities to provide what is best. But I think there needs to be a reversal in the part of the government to concentrate on the needs of people and realise that a more humanitarian, compassionate, empathetic approach is needed. And of course, that has to be allied to funding priorities. And I think there does need to be an audit carried out in each of these local authorities to find out the level of young people with special educational needs and then have the funding pot associated with it. Yes, indeed. And it was a question of yours, Baroness Ritchie, that basically showed that whilst the government say that they're going to put £6,000 nominal funding towards a child with special educational needs, considering the pot that there is available and the number of children who need it, the actual amount of money provided is less than 4000 Of course, it's also uh, discretionary, isn't it, by, by local authorities. So a child in Merton or a child in Newham could have a totally different funding pot to one in, let's say, Stockton. Yes, there is that variation. So I think... Their local government organisations 
and need to address these particular issues as well and need to try to impress government, whoever is in government, of the need to concentrate on family fund. There's also an issue there that I could try to impress one of my colleagues in the Labour Party because obviously manifesto setting will have started and I'm looking for a Labour victory in the general election but I think we need to get these issues addressed in the manifesto because hopefully then that they can be put on the government agenda for priority and for action and implementation. Coming on to if you were Secretary of State for Education, what would be the first thing you would change? That every child was given the choice of education that they that is best suited to their particular needs. I know that might sound a bit like a pie in the sky, but I think there needs to be resources dedicated to education because education is the pathway for our young people who are future generations who are going to supply our economy and be the engine drivers in that metaphorical sense of our economy. Obviously, earlier on, you mentioned the fact that you have been very active in ensuring that there is an RSV vaccination programme. What other areas of interest do you have? That there is a concentration on maybe a combined vaccination for both COVID and influenza. I'm also interested in the food system. And in fact, I chaired a meeting the other day on greater data and transparency in the food system because I was a member that dealt with the food system under uh, the chairmanship of uh, Lord Krebs. And basically that was about a salt reduction programme, a sugar reduction programme, and also about greater investment in the food system. Then there would be less emphasis on the need for medication and less burdens placed on our health service. And I think it's important that there's a greater emphasis on fruit and vegetables because they're better and in fact they can help to lower your cholesterol levels, which are is obviously something that is genetic and that you inherit. Another area I'm working on is dementia. I'm vice chair of the APPG on dementia. I've known colleagues who have actually died from dementia. I have family relatives who have dementia. And I think there needs to be a greater emphasis placed in the health agenda on that. Also an interest in online safety. I think children should be protected online and offline. So I had various amendments at the online safety bill. And I spoke asked some questions at the third reading in terms of the time frame for the implementation of the legislation and secondly the enforcement provisions that will be required. Okay so that does sound like a massive amount of work to do and a very full schedule so obviously you've touched before that you think that Labour's going to win the next election. What do you think has helped that Well, I think there are various reasons. So obviously I come from a social democratic point of view and I would say that after 13 years of the Conservative Party and we have seen the problems that have emerged since uh, with Boris Johnson and that's all of that carnage that could have been avoided in many, many ways. And I think that probably has contributed to Labour's coming up in the polls. But that is not the sole reason. The people are now, I think, fed up 
with austerity, fueled by the Conservative Party, and they want to move back as part of Middle England and the UK generally to a more social democratic vision, which will be provided for by the Labour Party. And I hope that that comes about. So do you feel positive about the future? I do, indeed, because I think that if you're in politics, you have to be positive. There's no point being negative because you'll not get anywhere. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, Baroness Ritchie, thank you very much for coming along. Where can people go to learn more about you? They could find out about me on the House of Lords website. They could also find out a limited amount of information. I have a Facebook page and I'm also on Twitter at mrichiesd. Well, Baroness Ritchie, thank you so much for coming along to talk to us today. I don't know about you as listeners, but for me, it was fascinating to get such an insight into your work as a public servant. And thank you to the listeners who've hopefully enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you have any questions regarding today, please feel free to comment. And if you think that it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. In the meantime, if you need something to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book, Party Games, on Amazon. And on that note, I hope to see you next time. Have a good week, one and all.